When it comes to your finances, go for the credit card that's always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We're talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. With Fidelity Wealth Management, a dedicated advisor can work with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential. Plus, you'll have access to specialists in estate planning strategies. So you're not just growing and protecting your wealth. You're sharing it. More at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. It's Sunday, August 15th. And today we have part two of our interview with Beth Akers. Now, if you missed yesterday, go listen to that first because she's got a great way of explaining what are usually kind of boring economic concepts. So we're talking about college, but she is approaching college from an economics perspective, meaning yesterday we talked about systemic risk and idiosyncratic risk. But today we're really going to be focusing on how choosing the right major or concentration can really change your earnings over the course of a career. Again, the book is called Making College Pay, An Economist Explains How to Make a Smart Bet on Higher Education. Here is the second part of our interview with Beth Akers. Let's talk about the area of concentration or major. And I mm-hmm. love the idea, by the way, that you actually just say like worthless major, like basket weaving. Okay. I went to Brown University and there was something <laughs> probably pretty close to basket weaving in the yeah. curriculum. So can you talk a little, I didn't, I was not such, but why is the major important? What we find, and this is from research from uh, Professor Doug Weber at Temple University, is that in, in terms of the data, what you study actually matters a lot more than where you study. So we put so much emphasis on getting into the right college, right? We celebrate where people are going. It's like a big Instagram reveal thing for high school graduating seniors these days. And no one talks about their major. It turns out that that's much more consequential in terms of whether or not you're going to see a financial return than where you go to school. I think that's surprising to some people. And sometimes people misinterpret what I say and and that they think, well, I don't want to be an electrical engineer. So uh, you're not going to take your advice because you're just telling me to go after the highest earnings occupation I can find. That's absolutely not true. What I'm advising is that you know what you're getting into. If you've Mm. got the financial backstop to be a, we use basket weaving, right? Because we don't want to offend anybody. I'm pretty sure there's no basket weaving majors actually at accredited institutions. (laughs) But, um, you know, if you've got the financial backstop and it works for your family to be a basket weaving major and then go out and see no economic return on what it is that you spent, good on you, go for it, right? But that's not the reality for most people. And I think going into these decisions with your eyes open is really all that I'm advocating for. It's interesting though, because I guess what I'm wondering is, so if what you studies matter matters more than where you study, does it stand to reason that Jill Schlesinger, graduate of Brown University, studies international relations. 
it's it's fine. Whatever she wants to do with it is fine. Mm-hmm. But that if I study international relations or some opaque political science-esque kind of history, blah, 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 at a college that's not seen as prestigiously as an Ivy League school, that that, yeah. that would actually be a big problem? Yeah. You know, years ago, being an investment banker was the big thing, right? Everybody wanted to figure out how to get on track to be an investment banker after they graduate. And people would often cite to me, well, yeah, well, we hire English majors from Harvard and Princeton and Yale to be investment bankers. Well, well, that's great. But (laughs) that informs like the very tiny percent of people who are at those elite institutions. Those folks are going to be just fine, whatever they study. That's the reality for them. But for the masses, the people who are not at those top 10 institutions, what you study does matter. So I don't want to give the, the wrong impression. I mean, if, you, if you've if you gotten yourself into an Ivy League institution, you sort of already won, won the lottery, right? When it comes to this kind of thing. If you are seeking a return and you're not at one of the top elite institutions, choosing a major with that in mind is actually critically important. You know, we have just, uh, I'm talking to you after we've had a couple of conversations with listeners. The amount of money outstanding in debt is pretty intense. So let me Mm -hmm. just look at my notes so I can give you the right numbers. The veterinarian who had $250,000 of graduate school debt, and I'm wondering, you know, the graduate school loans are far more expensive and they seem to pile up like crazy. Now, this veterinarian who makes $140,000 a year has $250,000 in debt. Mm -hmm. And so she's in her 30s. Was that a wise or unwise decision in your mind? Well, I mean, those, those degrees may pay off in the long run. I think that this is a case of what value does that individual place on being in that profession? And if it's worth it, if it's worth the financial sacrifice of not having the return that you could have gotten somewhere else, then that's just fine for that individual. I also want to point out, you know, we hear a ton about people with these huge balances and they're actually a small minority. That doesn't mean they're not important or we shouldn't worry about them, but they're a small minority and they're also eligible for a program with their federal loans called Income Driven Repayment. It's a program that's evolved from non-existence in the past 10 years to the point where today, anybody who faces loan payments that are excessive relative to what they're earning can have their loan payments automatically reduced to an affordable level. And then if those loans remain unaffordable for a long period of time, 20 years for most borrowers, then they'll have those loans discharged. So it's important to realize that we do have that pretty robust safety net in place for these big borrowers. And in fact, that's part of the reason that I tell people it's almost always better to borrow, even if you've got the cash to pay for college, because it's this program has evolved to be something like an insurance policy for colleges. And that's exactly what they're doing. It's funny you should mention that because she says she's doing income-based repayment Mm -hmm. and they're 10 years into it and they're making the minimum payments and it'll be forgiven 15 years later, right? And and the loan is, by the way, it's a 7% loan. So it's Mm -hmm. not like chump change. And the question was like, you know, should we still pay it off? And the answer is no, actually, (laughs) you shouldn't pay it off because it's going to get wiped clean. And so- it's really interesting um, how that calculation goes. And I guess the same with the public loan forgiveness right. um, program as well, right? Right. And you know what we've seen is that 
a lot of students that are, you know, have the most education understand this, right? And they're able to take advantage of the benefits of the program. We even have heard of law schools counseling students on how to get into this and um, taking it into account when they decide how much to borrow on the front end. The, what happens when you're in these programs and making the lowest payments possible, which you should be doing, is that you will have a growing balance, right? The, the loan is a negative amortization, meaning you're not pay, paying the interest that's accumulating each month. It turns out that's a really scary thing for a lot of borrowers. Um, the savvier ones, maybe like this individual we're just speaking about, see that and say, it doesn't matter because when I'm done with this payment period, it's all gone. It doesn't matter what the balance is. I don't have to pay taxes on it, nothing. But it seems like maybe some um, less informed borrowers are really put off by that. And I think putting themselves into more struggle to repay their loans um, than if that weren't the case. But it's it, one of those it, things that's, it's a hedge, right? Like as you said earlier, but you got to get to be comfortable with the idea. <laughs> right. I think the hardest part is that just like that it hangs over you and that that's mm-hmm. really what it is that people are like, oh my God, I don't know if I can deal with that almost, right. right? Like, oh, it's that big number. Let me ask you a question that you don't necessarily, I don't think you address this in the book, although I will admit to you that I was reading it at very wee hours <laughs> of the morning. Tell me a little bit about your opinion around the loan forgiveness debate that's going mm. on in DC. Yeah. So this this book I really tried to write for an audience of people who are trying to make this decision and and stay away from the my day job stuff, which is this political commentary. But the answer to this one is very clear. I absolutely hate these huge student loan forgiveness proposals that the far left has been floating for the past few years. So I will give credit to Senator Sanders and Senator Warren. They have succeeded in shifting the public debate about higher education so far to the left in the past five years. It's really incredible that people are talking about the idea of a student loan jubilee. I'll tell you the two reasons I don't like it. One is that a lot of very high income borrowers will be the biggest beneficiaries. If you think about who borrows a ton, people who go to graduate professional school, lawyers, doctors, these are high income people. They have large debts, but their income more than offsets how much they eventually will have to repay. So those are the biggest beneficiaries. The people who are in default most often with their student loans only have about $5,000 in debt. So we're paying these huge, huge, huge grants to people who don't need them in order to help out these people who we could really help out with a much smaller reward. The second reason is that we will be simply creating more of a problem for ourselves in the future. So, you know, I'm already telling people, borrow as much as you can, right? <laughs> don't, mm-hmm. spend, don't spend your cash on, on college. So if we have, you know, were to pass a, a loan jubilee this year, wipe away everybody's debt. And I personally would be advising people to say, okay, when you think about how much you're willing to pay for college, you probably want to take into account the idea that there's some probability that you're going to have your debt wiped away again with the political pressure put on politicians to have another student loan jubilee. So, I mean, not everybody's going to act on that, but some will. And I think it will shade everybody's borrowing up a degree. Institutions will say, oh, great, I can charge a bit more. (laughs) Or the increase in demand that it causes will allow that price increase to happen. Um, And then we've just made the problem worse for ourselves. So So now you're not just a student loan denier. (laughs) (laughs) 
You're a killer of, uh, but you know, it's interesting. I'm really I popular will, at cocktail parties. I have to tell you. I know really. <laughs> uh, I mean, really in the, in the liberal um, hovels of the country. <laughs> you know, what's interesting though, is there, is there a case to be made for getting loan forgiveness for some of the more egregious or nefarious actors? Oh like, yeah. Right. So that you're not saying, you're saying yeah, yeah. just this, a broad based, wipe the slate clean, magic wand. No, that's not on Beth's to-do list. No, exactly. You. you know, and I, I love that we have the income-driven repayment system because in our economy, we rely very heavily on education as a mechanism for social mobility, but it's a self-finance system, meaning you have to put your own dollars on the line to get through it. And so I think it is important that we have a safety net so that people don't have to risk life and limb in order to advance themselves economically, right? So I love that we have those programs. And I do want to help people out who invest in a degree not knowing that it's not going to yield an economic return to them or people who, you know, they went to law school and they find they've got crippling migraines when they're trying to do the work and they need to do something else and it's not affordable to them anymore. I'm I'm compassionate to all these cases where something just needs to happen to help out this person. In fact, I think we need to make a change to allow people to discharge their loans in bankruptcy, which is currently not allowed. So I'm All all for, you know, very specific instances, getting people off the hook when they really do need this help. But that broad-based forgiveness is just not the right way to go about it. Would you feel differently if it were income-tested? Oh, yes. I mean, that's essentially what the income-driven repayment program does. It's income-tested, meaning you get to pay reduced payments if your income is sufficiently low relative to how much you've borrowed. But it's also has the added characteristic of measuring income over a long period of time. Because Mm. we know that when people graduate, maybe their first job isn't one that's maybe in their field or they start out as a barista or something, right? That's the classic New York Times example of a struggling Mm -hmm. student borrower. But then, you know, if, if you follow those people over the years, they end up doing just fine. And so it does take sometimes a couple years for someone to kind of get a foothold in their profession. And so I think it makes sense to say, okay, let these loans aren't affordable to you this year or maybe even next year, but let's see what happens over the course of time. And if it ends up that your degree pays, then I think it's reasonable for you to pay back your loans. If it turns out that it doesn't, then let's get you off the hook somehow. It's really interesting to consider that, as you said, that just a teeny tiny fraction of borrowers have these huge loans, that most of this is about, you know, people who have less than that much, you know, like five Mm -hmm. or 10 grand, that's really it. But it's like, man, it is, it's as if you have like burned a flag in front of somebody (laughs) to suggest this. So can you talk a little bit about the idea that this has become such a flashpoint? Is it really just about anger of like, we're going back to the old conversation, which is so many of the people who have this debt are the millennials who are just unlucky. And this seems like a place to help them out. Yeah, I mean, a point of frustration for me is that I look at people who are actually doing quite well relative to most of the country, and yet they feel victimized by having had to borrow and pay for their own degree and having to pay that back. So I don't think people are necessarily just greedy or stupid or ignorant or anything like that, but I think something's going on that's causing all these people who may be really in an okay position financially to feel that they're not, to feel that they've been a victim of the process. You know, I don't know exactly where that comes from. I wonder if part of it is driven that people 
don't have a good sense of actually how well off they are compared to so many Americans. We know that it's still a privilege to have a college degree in this country. About a third of our workforce has that benefit and two thirds are operating without a degree and are earning lower wages as a result. So, you know, when I see that things like the student loan repayment pause has allowed people to save up for the $50,000 wedding they want to have or (laughs) take vacations, I mean, it, it seems like we're we're in an echo chamber of of the haves and the have-nots, and the and the haves kind of feeling like victims of this system when, in fact, they don't have the realization that they're just so much better off than than they could be otherwise. Uh, but I don't know. I think it's an open question. It's such a hot issue more than anything else. That's what I find it. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, I just feel like, oh my God, like I, I wrote about this in like my Tribune column and I got mm-hmm. just, uh, got a slew of people saying like, you have no idea what you're talking about. Because right. I was like, you know what? Maybe it's just like, if you're going to do it, my compromise was like for less than $10,000 yep. in income and whatever. Can we talk a little bit about some of the new forms of education mm-hmm. um, like these boot camps, FYI, my nephew who graduated from NYU in a meandering degree of, I'm not sure what, maybe like <laughs> urban studies. Yeah. And then went to one of these boot camps and just got a major league six figure job offer from an awesome company. Yep. And I was like, ah, didn't have to go to NYU at all. And would have, <laughs> my poor brother-in-law could have really, I mean, he could have used that money for his retirement, but can we talk right. a little bit about these, these boot camps or, um, you know, certificate programs, are they worth it? Are they not worth it? What's your view? Yeah. So a lot of them are, and a lot of them aren't. <laughs> it's just yeah. not like a really satisfying answer. But, um, <laughs> you know, I I sat down with a reporter from a major newspaper a couple of years back. And uh, one of the first questions she said to me is, so these boot camp things, they're a scam, right? <laughs> and, <laughs> and I think that's our knee jerk in higher ed. You know, anything that's like potentially for profit or doesn't look like that traditional college experience of like sitting on the quad in the sun, playing Frisbee between classes, right? It must be a scam or it must be less than. My belief is that, you know, we've overhyped this model of traditional higher education. It's hugely expensive, right? To have this traditional residential college experience. And colleges will sell you on the idea, of course, that it's necessary, that it creates more value then, you know, all the bits and pieces add up to seem it, it should be, right? There's some sort of magic created. I'm skeptical, right? I'm the cold-hearted economist. I think, you know, there's got to be a more efficient way to educate people, to impart in people the skills that they need to be valuable to employers. And so I love models like boot camps. For listeners that don't know about them, they're often in the coding world right now where somebody can take kind of a quick and dirty course, sometimes a couple months, and learn the basics of computer coding. And then often these bootcamp programs have pathways to really great companies that hire their graduates because they know exactly what skills they'll possess when they come start. And so I love that. I think that's um, kind of exploiting this idea that maybe there isn't like some magic formula that's happening on college campuses. And maybe there is a way to get educated and get skills in a less expensive way. I think there's going to be demand for it from students as we all become more financially savvy about student debt, about the returns that are available in different programs of study. And um, I'm curious to see it. I mean, a lot of the certificate programs that exist are offered at community colleges right now. So they're totally within the traditional program. Some are outside. 
But, you know, unfortunately, unlike traditional colleges, there's no big database that you can go to to see, okay, what does this boot camp pay? What does this certificate program pay for its graduates after they finish? So you need to be really ready to do your homework. Talk to the institution you're considering and ask them for evidence about how their graduates have performed or not performed in getting jobs after they finish. Do you think it would be a good or a bad idea if, say, you know, Amazon Web Services decides we need just way more programmers and they say, okay, anyone who has two years of college, come work here, go through our boot camp and you'll get a job after. Mm -hmm. Is that something, first of all, do you think it's a trend that could take on, you know, just gain a little currency and would it be good or bad necessarily? I think it would be great. I mean, one of the most troubling trends in higher ed is that the tuition inflation is just simply out of control. And I think people often, you know, act like this is mysterious. Like, why are prices going up so quickly? To me, it's obvious that we've told everybody in this country, you have to have a college degree, right? So demand is skyrocketing for higher education. And so people are going out. They've also been told it's a golden ticket to success. And so they're willing to pay any price. So the only way to stop that is to make it okay and affordable for people to choose not to go to college, right? And not to not get educated, not to not get skills, but not to go to that traditional residential four-year experience that we all tend to think of. Well, I love this. I mean, this woman has changed my perspective. And hey, you know, now we know that student loans are on uh, forbearance through January 31st. So uh, the conversation is even more timely to have it now. It's so smart. When you think about college and you think about it as an investment, maybe you too would like to understand the rate of return or the cost of the getting that loan and how that impacts you overall. I really encourage you to check out the book. It's quite excellent, very readable. So thank you so much to Beth Akers for joining us. And thank you guys for tuning in this Sunday. During the week, of course, we're going to be getting back to your questions. I'm going on vacation. I am very psyched for this. That said, we have programs every single day. They're in the can. And Mark has done a fantastic job. We may not be so speedy in getting back to you because in the next couple of weeks, we both are trying to take some time off. I encourage you guys to do the same thing. But if you have a question and you just want to get it off your mind right now, maybe you're driving yourself a little crazy, send it to us. If you're on the website, jillonmoney.com, hit the contact button. If you just want to send us an email, it's askjill at jillonmoney.com. Don't forget to put your hands metaphorically on someone else's back. And please, please, please think about this. We need grit to get through the tough times. We will grow because of it. We will have grace and we'll also have gratitude. Thanks for listening. And you'll hear our voices tomorrow, but I will not be here. All right.